Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, the ravages of acne and how it can be helped. 80% of Americans will at one point in their life have acne and that's really an astounding number if you think about it. Plus, what medications are most effective in treating prostate cancer? The good thing for pharmacists and providers alike is that even though there's, you know, one or two dozen of these drugs, they really belong to a few different categories. And each of them in the setting that they're used for has evidence for increasing uh, overall survival. And the importance of exercise in treating cancer. Research is showing that moderate levels of exercise is helping people maintain their function, maintain strength, maintain their energy. We'll get our expert water safety advice and hear from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we take a look at the most effective prostate cancer medications and their costs, plus the benefits of exercise during and after cancer treatment. But first, the ravages of acne and how it can be helped. Acne is the most common skin condition in the United States, and it can wreak havoc on the lives of the young people coping with this troublesome and sometimes disfiguring problem. In addition, accurate information about acne can be hard to find. Joining us with more on this is Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology and Associate Professor of Medicine and Pathology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Farah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So acne what exactly is acne? I mean, let's start out with, help us understand what it is. Sure. So basically, acne is an inflammation of what's called the pilosebaceous unit, basically the hair follicle. And uh, when you have inflammation, you have redness, you have accumulation of cells called neutrophils, you have plugging of the hair follicle structure. And all of those things can lead to certain types of acne. So for example, when you have a plug of the hair follicle, medically you get lesions called comedones, which are basically whiteheads and blackheads in, in layman's terms. And uh, as the uh, condition progresses, you go from these plugged pores to the inflammatory follicle. And that's what most people call the zit. But, and that's what we see as these red bumps and pus bumps on the face. But basically, it's a series of steps that starts off with the plugging of the hair follicle. Once the hair follicle is plugged, there's an accumulation of oil and so forth in the uh, hair follicle unit. When there is that accumulation, the bacteria come in and grow and essentially feed off of it. And once you get that bacterial overgrowth, the body tries to fight against it and it mounts an inflammatory response. And at that point, you have the acne zit, the so-called zit. So do we understand what causes it to occur? I mean, you're giving us what actually is happening, but why does it happen? Sure, that's a good question. And while we may not know the exact answer, we have some hints, um, but it's considered a multifactorial con condition, meaning certain environmental factors come into play with a person's skin. And if the skin is predisposed in such a way, then it will manifest acne. But essentially, we think that there is some abnormality in the differentiation of the skin. And what does that mean? That means, you know, skin cells are born, they develop, and they die. And that process is called differentiation. That may be a little bit abnormal in people who are acne prone. And that abnormality leads their skin to be plugged and leads the hair follicle to plug. And that's the first step that initiates this cascade that eventually um, uh, manifests itself as full-blown acne. Uh, but the things that can affect these are the hormonal environment. Um, Is that 
not to interrupt yeah, you, sure. but is that why you see it more frequently around puberty? Definitely. That's right. Uh, just as an example, I, I think by the age, by age 25, something like 12% of women and 5% of men uh, have acne. By age 45, it's down to 5%. Uh, for both uh, sexes, but it starts in puberty and the rates of uh, involvement are higher in puberty. And I should just say that even though that may sound like a small number, by age 45, 5% of the population, 5% is actually a huge number, number one. And number two, the other statistic is 80% of Americans will at one point in their life have acne, and that's really an astounding number if you think about it. Would you say that's true? I mean, you might not have the numbers, but is that true worldwide? I mean, or is this is, is there something about the United States, for example, uh, that makes us more predisposed? No, not particularly. I think this is just a, a, a shared humanity. Uh, uh, all na nations, all sexes, all ages can have acne. But I will say it seems that Mediterranean basin, uh, individuals from the Mediterranean basin from like uh, Spain to Iran, seem to have a higher incidence. Now, is that uh, something genetic or ethnic, or is it environmental? It's hard to say. That was my next question. You actually segued right into it. And so I guess the question is, is there a genetic predisposition? You mentioned that something about a particular person's cell ev evolution yeah predisposes them to perhaps having acne. So is this genetically determined? Does it run in families? You know, from a practical point of view, from experience in the clinic, I would say yes, it does, because oftentimes uh, parents who are patients in our practice come in with their kids uh, when their kids are starting at a young age. So I do see it all the time that it does run in families, but we haven't on a scientific basis identified an acne gene. I think it's more of an issue of, uh, you know, parents or children are genetically similar and the children inherit a package of genes that make their skin prone to it. But there's no one gene we've isolated. What other contributing factors play a role? For example, you know, there's there's a talk about certain medications that they may people may take or greasy cosmetics or hormone changes during pregnancy, that kind of thing. Do sure. those play a role as well? Yes, all of them play a role. So let's take medications first. Uh, there are some anti-seizure med medicines and psychiatry medicines, for example, lithium. Lithium is well known to induce uh, an acne response, and I often see patients on lithium treat them for the acne, and it's always a challenge because they have to stay on their medicine. Prednisone can cause acne as well on the face and the trunk, so certainly medications can do this. Um, Hormone levels can do this, uh, of course, as people naturally develop during puberty and so forth. But also uh, tied into that is the issue of stress. So if you're stressed, you will produce hormones that will activate your oil glands that will make your acne worse. And occlusion is another one. You mentioned greasy cosmetics. So essentially anything that plugs your skin or covers occludes your skin will contribute to acne. And that can be uh, cosmetics. It can even be a baseball cap. If you wear it all the time, you can get acne on your forehead. Really interesting. So do we see it equally in men and women? Or is uh, there a pre... Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, we, we do see it more in men than women at an earlier age. And then as um, they go into adulthood and middle age, it's women more than men. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with dermatologist Dr. Ramsey Farah, and we're talking about acne. So does diet or eating oily foods play a role? I mean, you know, there's all this, you know, these old wives' tales out there about chocolate or other right. kinds of foods. I tend to pay attention to old wives' tales, actually, because yeah. I think they're based <laughs> on a, a sort of many uh, decades and generations of wisdom. But having said that, um, from a scientific point of view, if you look at uh, the literature, it can go either way. Uh, some people propose that junk foods and so forth worsen acne, and other studies suggest it doesn't. So uh, I think that's still up in the air. Um, there have been some suggestions that a lot of dairy 
milk-based products. Milk or milk-based products can worsen acne. And if you think about it intuitively, it makes sense because whether it's organic milk or not, for example, it's still coming from a cow, a biologic organism that has hormones in it. And so when you drink the milk, you're getting some of those hormones as well, even if it's organic milk. Um, the other uh, possibility is, um, you know, people are advocating this so-called South Beach diet where it has low carbs and high protein. There was one study that showed uh, 12 weeks of this diet seemed to improve people's acne. So uh, it's still a little bit up in the air. But for example, these diets that seem to maybe decrease insulin levels may wind up helping your acne. Oh, that's interesting. So why is it so essential to treat it? Well, for one thing, it's essentially an epidemic, right? If you take a look at that statistic, 80% of all Americans have acne at one point in their life. Uh, but you may ask, well, what's the big deal about acne? And acne really is a very big deal. I mean, studies show people who have it have higher rates of depression and anxiety. As you mentioned in your intro, it can really be disfiguring in terms of the scarring. It can uh, result in. Um, and so this is classic of the interplay between psychology and the visual aspects of dermatology. If you have a disease, whether it's acne or something else that causes, quote, a disfigurement or an abnormality, it's out for everyone to see in plain view, and that really affects people. Absolutely. So that's the reason to treat it. So what are the preferred levels of treatment? I don't want to run out of time. I mean, I know there's topical treatment, there are medicines, there is more recently something like Accutane, light therapy. Tell me what you, at this point, what's the state of the art? Uh, really, the state of the art is to look at the patient, see what kind of acne they have, and then tailor a treatment uh, that's individualized to their type of acne. And so there's no sort of cookbook answer. Everyone is different, so everyone requires a different treatment, but the treatments include creams, they include pills, antibiotics, they include um, you know, serious medicines like Accutane, they include in some instances lasers, or as you said, light therapy, something called photodynamic therapy, um, chemical peels. Uh, so there's a whole gamut, uh, uh, an array of possible treatments, which is exciting because uh, my father used to always say to someone when he comes in the office, don't worry, there is no acne we can't treat. And with all of the things we have, I think it's actually true. Is it more true today than it was, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago? Do you think the treatments have improved? I think they have improved. The medications, even though the medications may be very similar than before, or the delivery of the medications is, is uh, different and enhanced. So yes, I would say so. How early do you think you need to start treatment? Or would you, would you recommend starting treatment? Really, the answer is whenever the acne arises and whenever it starts to bother people. But I've seen uh, kids in our office that are 8 years old, 9, really? 10. Uh, it does seem to be starting younger these days. Uh, As is puberty, yes, by the way. Yes, and I think the two are, are probably tied together. For whatever reason, people are going through puberty quicker. They're also getting acne at an earlier age. So when should you see a doctor? as opposed to trying to do this with OTC, over-the-counter type medications and whatever? Sure. I think if you have a very young child and they have comedonal acne, meaning uh, whiteheads and blackheads, it's fine to start with over-the-counter medications. But if the acne progresses, uh, then I would come in and see a doctor because, remember, the, uh, the open and closed pores are the first step, and if they're not treated, it may lead to a worse condition. I'll just say one caveat, though. You have to be careful. The FDA recently issued a warning that there are some over-the-counter products that can cause some serious side effects, so you may want to Google them and check them out on the Internet before you proceed. How about treating the scars? Do you have effective ways these days? And again, I don't want to run out yeah, of time. Yeah, there are uh, a lot of effective treatments, um, but they're not cures. And I think depending on the degree of acne scars people have, they should have realistic expectations that the scars will improve but not go away completely. Uh, there's um, lasers, there are chemical peels, there are some surgical options, and there's more recently something called medical microneedling where uh, it's a procedure that uh, in a microscopic manner injures the skin. And the other thing we can do is we can draw people's blood and centrifuge it and then isolate the cells from the plasma. 
and then we take that plasma, which has a lot of growth factors, and put it on people's skin. It's their own plasma. Wow. We put it on their skin after the microneedling, and that shows uh, a lot of promise. That's really that's really tailing, tailored medicine. It is. <laughs> Targeted it's fun tailored and exciting. Yeah. Yes. So very quickly, what's the bottom line? Is it treat early and avoid scarring? or? Yes. Treat early, avoid scarring, avoid the psychological effects. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. Very, thank you. very enlightening. My guest has been Dr. Ramsey Farr, Division Chief of Dermatology, Associate Professor of Medicine and Pathology at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, the most effective prostate cancer medications. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen joining you. The prognosis for men diagnosed with prostate cancer has never been brighter. Doctors now have a variety of ways to treat prostate cancer, including surgery, radiation, immunotherapy, and drugs that slow the growth of cancer cells. We'll hear with more on the medications being used is Andrew Bergdorf. He is the adult hematology oncology clinical pharmacist for the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Great to be here. So we've come a long way, I guess, with the medications that can be used to treat prostate cancer. I mean, there are these are what we call the chemotherapy drugs. Am I correct? Yes. Um, probably the most exciting two that have hit the market recently are the Zytiga and Xtandi, uh, which are some oral medications that uh, impact prostate cancer. So these are new. These are brand new drugs. Relatively speaking, in the last couple of years, and we've uh, developed some experience with them now and uh, tested them in a couple different settings. So these are the drugs that are typically part of what we call the chemotherapy part or regimen in terms of treatment of prostate cancer. And as I said, we have a variety of ways of treating prostate cancer, but these are considered part of the chemotherapy regimen. Yes, and it's usually related to people who are a little bit further along with the disease. So people that might have more limited disease could more likely get um, maybe watch and wait, or they could get a you know, surgical uh, and, uh involvement, or they could also have radiation therapy, and then usually people that are a little bit further down the line for locally advanced disease or, or disease that spread throughout the body, um, they would be more candidates to get these medications. So in fact, as, as you kind of alluded to, the things that determine what kind of treatments are undertaken are the stage or the stage of the tumor, the level of PSA, for example, or the Gleason score, the grade of the tumor, how much of the prostate is affected, and whether, in effect, this has spread outside of the prostate. All of those factors come together to determine what the treatment regimen would be. Is that correct? Absolutely. But what you just said before that was that when you have people with a little bit more advanced state of prostate cancer, those are the ones more often would be given either a combination of therapies or primarily the chemotherapy. Correct. So are there other factors that play a role in de decision-making? In other words, do things like the toxicity of the drugs or the side effects or the person's age um, affect or whether they've had past treatments of any kind, do those play a role in the medications that are chosen? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think with any chemotherapy, we always employ an individualized approach. Um, you know, for instance, if somebody is doesn't have a great performance status, as in, you know, they're not that mobile or they're bedbound or something like that, then, you know, they're less of a candidate to get something like a harsh chemotherapy like docetaxel. Um, you know, one of the new oral medications that we talked about, the enzalutamide or X-Tandy, um, for instance, has a um, specific contraindication with people who've had uh, seizures or have a propensity that might be more likely to have seizures. So certainly we, you know, consider all those things before we put anyone on any particular regimen. So there are right now currently on the market or available 
almost two dozen medications that are currently approved for use. So basically, can you help us understand what are the mechanisms that underlie the use of these drugs? In other words, what are the drugs doing? Is there a general principle underlying most of them? And then we'll talk specifically about the ones you've mentioned. Uh, sure. Um, you know, as a general overview, um, uh, the good thing for pharmacists and providers alike is that even though there's, you know, one or two dozen of these drugs, um, they really belong to a few different categories. Okay. And so we have uh, one group of called like the uh, luteinizing hormone, releasing hormone agonists. Um, and they're a group of medications that, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the luteinizing hormone basically tells the testes to make more testosterone. So when, interestingly, it sounds like if you were doing an agonist or you were increasing the amount of stimulation there, that that might be making more testosterone. But in fact, there's kind of a negative feedback loop that says, hey, uh, if you produce too much of this hormone, the body will end up turning around and shutting it off. So the, but the point here is that it's attempting to shut down the production of testosterone, which increases the production of the cancer cells? Is it is it that the testosterone makes the cancer cells more vigorous? Yes. Yes. So the testosterone is the driver um, of, you know, often of the prostate cancer. And so when you can shut that down via various, various mechanisms, um, you know, that benefits you. So what drugs fall into that category of the luteinizing antagonist? Um, there's the goserelin, the luprolide, uh, those are probably the most common. There's some other ones that are less commonly seen, uh, the triptorelin and hysterelin. Do they have any other names? Because those uh, names well, are... Well, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the other one that we most commonly... The lupra, or luprolide is lupron. lupron. I mean, that one is very, very popular. Mm -hmm. um, so that mechanism basically is... So that's one category of mechanism where it's trying to tell the testes don't make any more testosterone. Right, right. Or no, and make more testosterone. It's, it's basically... No, to, don't make as much testosterone. Right, okay. Um, and then there's also um, a couple medications that are um, in a bit of a um, smaller category called like the anti-androgens, and they're basically like a testosterone-specific blocker. And so androgen is, explain is, that. I'm sorry. Uh, so androgen is kind of an, another word for the type of thing that testosterone is uh, that, again, stimulates the, the cancer cells. So uh, these two so far, and I'm assuming all of them, all these categories – the underlying principle here is to somehow thwart or stop the production of these cancer cells. You're trying to create an environment where they can't survive or where they it stops the, the speedy division of these cells. Is that correct? Yeah. What you're doing is stopping the nectar that causes the proliferation. The nectar meaning the food. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So is there a third category as um, well? You know... Those are, you know, the, in general, some of the, er, again, early medications used. You know, later on... Early, but, you mean early in the in the course of the disease? Yeah, you, it could or be early, early in the course of the disease as far as um, maybe people with... Um, the people that are first starting to need medication therapy will often start on what they call androgen deprivation therapy. Um, and again, that's what a lot of these medications are. Um <clears throat> Um, but if they have more advanced disease? If you have disease, more advanced disease, so um, markers of that would be if you had a really high PSA, um, if you had um, advanced disease to start out where the, um, you know, you had uh, metastases, metastases that had uh, circulated throughout the body, especially at the time of diagnosis, or if you started out uh, with kind of lesser disease, and then you'd progress to this. So it would be a more aggressive type of tumor, yep. aggressive type of cell, and you were really rapidly, Yeah, it was the, spreading in a rapid fashion. Right. The other thing would be metastases, especially to the bone, like if you notice bone involvement. Again, those are certainly signs of significant um, concern and, and um, advanced disease. So what type of medication would you use in that circumstance? Those guys specifically usually start on docetaxel, or Taxotere is the brand name of that one. And again, that one is uh, usually they give it every three weeks. Um, there's somewhat of a um, somewhat of a risk of people having um, some infusion type reactions to that, or some some moderate nausea, vomiting. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with pharmacist Andrew Bergdorf, and we're talking about the range of medications being used to treat prostate cancer. But at the core of all of this, basically you're trying to create an environment where the, prost- where the cancer isn't going to survive or is going to be somehow blocked. But at what cost, I guess? In other words, from two standpoints, I want to talk about the cost. The actual cost, which I want to get to after, but how about the side effects? You were starting to allude to some side effects here. How toxic are these drugs, and how much more ill do they make the patient? Um, the the, the docetaxel or taxotere that I mentioned a minute ago, which was begin our kind of group of like cytotoxic chemotherapy, like, hey, I'm just going to go in and, and, and kill these uh, rapidly proliferating cells, um, is, is kind of harsh actually, especially the way it's given in this uh, setting is like an every three week, once every three week setting. And, um, you know, it can cause um, most significantly like a, a neutropenia or decrease in your white blood cells, which makes you at risk for infection, um, you know, fatigue and that type of thing. Nausea. Um, yeah, some, some nausea vomiting. It's not, um, you know, top of the list as far as nausea vomiting, but certainly uh, to some degree, um, some kind of... Um, like neuropathy or that type of thing. So there are many, many side effects. Yeah. Is that true for, across the board for all of these different prostate cancer medications? Um, the side effects differ quite significantly. So, for instance, we were talking before about the LHRH agonists like Lupron. And those ones, um, when you start messing around with the androgens, you can get some hot flashes and, and hormonal type, hormonal type changes, um, changes in the breast tissue or changes in sex drive and that type of thing. Well, the bottom line is, how effective are these? I mean, do they actually thwart the cancer growth and do they prolong life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And each of them in the setting that they're used for has evidence for increasing uh, overall survival, which is our, you know, uh, is really the barometer for uh, medication efficacy in the cancer setting. Um, you know, same thing with docetaxel in that if you use it on the patients who uh, have the advanced disease, you will see improved survival in those folks. So the two newer drugs that you mentioned before, what's significant about them? What makes them unique? Um, well, let's see. Uh, they're a little bit more targeted agents. Um, they are used specifically in patients that have uh, what, like metastatic, uh, what they call castrate, resistant prostate cancer, which either means you've had surgery to remove your testes or you've had the androgen deprivation therapy, which is kind of the medical equivalent. Um, and you can use, like, for instance, the Zytiga or Aber- Aberadarone. You can use that one before or after docetaxel. So they can be used in combination. But do they cause, I mean, are these side, do they have less side effects associated with them? Um, I would say, yeah, As, and in comparison specifically to docetaxel. So, for instance, if you had somebody who was, you know, 85 years old, they're not probably going to tolerate docetaxel that well, no? 85 it's a harsher coming, drug. Yeah. So uh, if you had the option to use, uh, you know, in a more uh, frail patient or someone who might be a little bit more sensitive to chemotherapy, certainly it would be reasonable to use that before docetaxel, perhaps, in that setting. So let me get to the other aspect of cost. It seems to me that I've read somewhere that some of these drugs can cost upwards between up to $10,000 a month, some little, as, as little as, which isn't little, 1500 a month. How can people afford to pay for this? Is this largely being covered by insurance? Um, fortunately... Um, the insurance industry has, has now come around to uh, insuring the oral chemotherapy meds, um, you know, relatively appropriately. But, you know, if you're in an environment where you have to do significant cost sharing, let's say a, a plan where you pay 20% and they pay 80% or something like that, I mean, not many of us have an extra 2000 bucks a month in their pocket. So it is really a stress, a major stress. And now there's some attempts to put generic drugs into the mix here. So that are these going to be more cost effective? I mean, there is, there is indeed, and there's, you know, we have our generalized, you know, generic medications that are um, for some of the things that might be less complex, and then there's a, a newer term that's kind of out, that's kind of a buzzword called uh, biosimilars, and that's talking about basically making generic versions of some of our more complex protein and uh, complex targeted therapies. 
And are those going to be available? They're starting to come to market here probably in the next month or two. Um, and there's a, there's a generic, or I'm sorry, a biosimilar coming out for a white blood cell stimulator. And, you know, as that kind of moves forward, I think other people will be coming into that arena. So there's a little bit of hope in terms of cost relief? Yes, yes, absolutely. And So overall, it sounds to me that the future is brighter for people who have prostate cancer, even advanced prostate cancer, in that there are drugs that can help, can prolong life, can be effective, and now they may even be more cost-effective going forward. Absolutely. Does that sound likely to you? Yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's the direction we're going, and there's also um, opportunities for folks to get assistance from, um, you know, perhaps the American Cancer Society or the Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition, um, which can direct you to resources to um, hopefully maybe offset some of those costs you're incurring. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My guest has been Andrew Bergdorf. He is the adult hemat- hematology and oncology clinical pharmacist for Upstate Cancer Center. And now, some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Derek Cooney, an associate professor of emergency medicine, is here to tell us all about water-related injuries. We all know swimming and boating are popular summer pastimes, but avoiding injury and preparing to react if the worst were to happen are important considerations when setting out for summertime enjoyment. The Center of Disease Control and Prevention tells us that there are about 3,500 fatal non-boating-related drownings every year in the United States. That's about 10 deaths per day, and an additional 300 to 350 people die each year from drowning in boating-related events. Drowning is a serious problem, and in young children, it represents one of the leading causes of death, even in victims who have successful medical resuscitation with their heart being restarted. Severe and permanent brain damage is a significant and real risk. There are a number of risk factors that make drowning more likely, like swimming ability not being up to snuff, lack of a fence or barrier around a pool or pond, poor or no supervision for children, or if you drink alcohol or fail to wear your life vest, or uh, even if you have a seizure disorder, that could put you at higher risk. Drinking alcohol while boating and swimming can be especially dangerous. Serious powerboat injuries and crashes occur, and drowning from paralysis after neck injury can happen when somebody dies in the shallow water, usually due to poor judgment from alcohol intoxication. Spinal cord injuries from diving in shallow water frequently lead to lifelong paralysis, if not death, at the time of the event. If you come across someone uh, who's a drowning victim and they, you did not witness the event, keep in mind that they, it's important to call for help but they may also have a spinal cord injury as well. If someone has almost died or suffered a significant submersion, even when they are awake and breathing, emergency medical evaluation is still warranted in all cases, and 911 should be called, and the individual should be taken to the hospital because delayed complications may occur, and they really do need to be seen in the emergency department by the doctors. For victims who aren't breathing or don't have a pulse, CPR should be started right away, and 911 must be called. Pre-hospital providers provide some in, uh, interventions aimed at restoring the oxygen to the blood supply to the, to the patient, as well as assisting in providing breathing to them. In some cases, they'll need to shock uh, the person's heart. If you come across a drowning victim, check to see if they respond to you. Call 911 and take instructions from the 911 call taker or dispatcher who may tell you what to do in the next few minutes. If you have a pool or hot tub, you really should have a fence or barrier that keeps people from accidentally falling in. Accidental drowning in pools is a major cause of drowning in young children, and older children and adults should be taught pool and open water safety, swimming, and self-rescue techniques. You should never try to rescue someone by jumping into the same water with them unless you've been trained in water rescue. Seek training, and remember that the simple principle of reach, throw, row, and go. So the first step would be to use a pole or other device to reach to the person in trouble while making sure you've stayed safely planted on the ground. If if that fails, then you consider throw, which is throwing a flotation device, buoy, or rope to them in an attempt to bring them into shore or the edge. Row means to attempt boat rescue, but this is more technically difficult, and if done wrong, could end up in the flipping of the boat, especially the smaller boats used. 
Go means entering the water to attempt to rescue, and this is very dangerous and could result in the victim unintentionally drowning you if you're not properly trained and experienced. Stay safe, consider rescue options before there's a need, and prevent accidental entry into pools, lakes, ponds, streams, and rivers, and remember to avoid alcohol while boating and swimming. Next up, the benefits of exercise in treating cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen joining you. In the past, people treated for a chronic illness like cancer were often told by their doctor to rest and reduce their physical activity. But newer research has shown that exercise is not only safe and possible during cancer treatment, but it can actually improve how well you function physically and the quality of your life. Joining us with more on this is Cassie Turpening, who holds a doctorate in physical therapy and specializes in oncology rehabilitation at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Hi. Thank you for having me. So why not rest? I mean, why exercise? Well, research is showing that uh, moderate levels of exercise during um, treatment or management of cancer is helping people maintain their function, maintain strength, maintain their energy. So, you know, it helps with, you know, just keeping them going and kind of helping them through the their healing process. And actually, there have been actual research studies that have shown that looking at two populations, people with breast cancer, for, for example, who hadn't exercised versus ones who have, the ones who have really have had longer lives and better outcomes. Is that also true? Yeah, more and more research about this is coming out. It's kind of a, you know, a popular topic right now. You know, it's, you know, exercise has health benefits for everyone, but especially in, you know, individuals who already have some issues or, you know, health conditions. So I know that one of the biggest problems with cancer treatments or one of the biggest side effects is fatigue. Mm -hmm. So if you're so tired, how do you muster the energy for exercise? And in, in effect, is, does it actually help with fatigue? Yes, exercise can help with fatigue. You know, we talk with our patients about, um, you know, activity modification, pacing, and saving energy in some places to be used for exercise. So if you save energy during cooking, um, you can use the energy, you know, later in the day for walking or biking or, you know, some other more physical activity that you enjoy. So some of it is a pacing kind of thing. Yeah, you know, kind of saving the energy and making time for that, you know, later in the day when you're, you know, when your energy levels are at their best. One other thing that I read somewhere was that also this notion of elevating your mood. It seems to me that during something as serious and as somber as the diagnosis of cancer and then treatment, obviously people have all kinds of emotional reactions to that. What have you found in terms of that? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's known that exercise can increase in induce or increase endorphins so that you know that just makes everybody generally feel better but and and then the other issue is weight control Mm -hmm. um which it seems to me that people do gain weight or don't gain weight after typically weight loss is a problem you know so the intention of exercise is to you know maintain or improve strength and function not to lose weight so you know it's important that you know they watch their diet make sure they're taking in enough calories because you don't want to you know encourage increased weight loss but if anything I would think it could also increase appetite and, can, you, yeah. and you're willing. So how about if you're a person who's never exercised and here you now have a diagnosis of cancer mm-hmm. and all of the concomitant pressures and difficulties that go along with getting treatment? Yeah, I mean, that's partly why our program was um, developed. You know, we help patients um, create individualized plans for um, exercise and um you know, massage and stuff like that to help get them feeling better. But we, you know, we help start them on a program and we start very slowly, you know, and we help them build up. So we can kind of step by step help people 
you know, progress or start exercising. So what kind of, I mean, basically, what type of exercise is recommended? I mean, you're making it sound like you want to start slowly, obviously, mm -hmm. but is it, are there obviously some types of exercise that are better than others? Um, it's very patient specific, you know, so it depends on, you know, the, the person's activity level, what kind of cancer they are, kind of where they are in the stage of cancer or treatment. Um, but, you know, it's recommended that, you know, most of us or we all exercise up to 30 minutes a day, five days a week. So, you know, that's kind of the the end goal. But even if it's just a few minutes here and a few minutes there, you know, just slowly increasing to, you know, what's recommended. So basically this is being encouraged all, all the time now with new cancer treatment uh, centers and people and teams mm -hmm. are basically saying the new protocol is really to get people active and to try to stay active all the way through and after mm -hmm. cancer treatment. Correct. Yep. As a physical therapist, we're working part as part of a multidisciplinary team. So we're working with, you know, the doctors and the nurse practitioners and the nurses, um, you know, kind of all encompassing trying to help all of these patients. So what are the and what are the components of a really effective exercise program? I mean, you have you always have the aerobic issue, the strength mm -hmm. training, potentially stretching and flexibility. What are those basically the main components? Components, I yeah, I mean, certainly aerobic exercise and usually walking is safe for everybody. Um, you know, also, how about a stationary bicycle? Is that usually something that is accepted as a reasonable thing to do? Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if somebody has access to one, you know, at home or a gym, and then they're comfortable on it, then it's, an, it's definitely an okay thing to do. So, in addition with aerobic, what else? Um, some strengthening exercises, you know, and some stretching just to cover all of your um, bases. But you know, strengthening for legs, arms. Um, core. So, and do you need to use weights for that kind of thing or can you do kind of um, isometric type exercises? Well, What's you can best? do exercises using your own body weight. So, you know, you can create a program, you know, that you can do at home without any equipment. So do you need, I mean, basically it sounds to me like, and you've already alluded to a program that you're involved with, do you, I mean, would you recommend or do you think you need a physical therapist to help set up a personalized program? Is that most desirable mm -hmm. for you? Um, I, I would say it's probably helpful for, helpful for most people. You know, unless you have a, you know, a significant background or you've been exercising for a long time, you know, sometimes it's just good to have a little help to know, you know, what's safe to do, what maybe you should or shouldn't do, some suggestions. I mean, for example, I saw that there were exercises specifically prescribed for things like to prevent lymphedema, mm -hmm. things that come with side effects of treatment. Yeah. Yep. And to improve range of motion if you've had certain kinds mm -hmm. of treatment. Yeah, so that's why it would be helpful to, you know, consult with, you know, a medical professional or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist to help kind of bring some of these things to your attention. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with physical therapist Dr. Cassie Turpening. We're talking about the benefits of exercise for cancer patients. So what should you watch out for? I mean, what are the potential pitfalls in terms of, you know, I would think that especially people who maybe were very active or had exercised a great deal mm -hmm. prior to their diagnosis might potentially overdo it. Is that a possibility? It is a possibility. You know, usually we recommend or we suggest that, you know, you, you continue on with your current level of activity. So, you know, kind of trying to maintain or keep doing the things that you were doing and then kind of, you know, adding on to that. Um, but is it, but if you have a person, let's say you were a marathon runner mm -hmm. and you ended up now with some kind of a cancer and you needed to have treatment, mm -hmm. is there, are there some, um, limitations that you would want to place on someone who is undergoing treatment? I mean, I would think fatigue alone might play yeah. a role, but. Yeah. I mean, fatigue can be a problem and you know, it's a, most people who have cancer suffer from fatigue at some level. Um, you know, so usually, you know, during treatment, you know, just kind of starting slow, see how your body is responding to the exercise and the treatment and the things that are happening, you know, at that time. Um, you know, monitoring fatigue, making sure that when you're, you know, when you're done exercising, the fatigue is 
not, you know, to a point where it's not manageable. I mean, we should all feel a little bit tired when we're done exercising, but you want to make sure that you're not, you know, so tired where you're not able to do anything the next day. So that's definitely something to consider. Um, you so know, basically start slowly and proceed and basically progress incrementally to correct. see how you do. Go mm -hmm. ahead. You were no, 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 absolutely. You know, kind of just making sure that you are going to be, you know, doing okay with what you're trying to do. What if you don't have the energy, for example, for a full half hour? Because you said the goal would be 30 minutes, five days a week. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you can't quite do that? What What's good enough? Yeah, I mean, walking for a few minutes at a time, you know, throughout the day is also found to be beneficial. So if you can only walk for two or three minutes and at a time, then, you know, walking two or three minutes in the morning, walking a few minutes in the afternoon, and then walking a little bit in the evening, just kind of slowly building up. And as you can, you know, trying to add a little bit more time to that. How about things, just the more routine things like gardening or house cleaning? Do those, do those count yeah. if you were to do that in yeah. place? Yeah, any physical activity that kind of gets you, you know, moving and expending a little more energy. And how about like um, things like yoga, tai chi, all of those kinds of ancillary they're not really aerobic exercises yeah, but but absolutely I mean those all all help with strength and balance and you know conditioning so those are all beneficial things you know I, it's it's best to pick something that you're interested in so if you you know enjoy yoga then you know do yoga if you like Pilates then you know try Pilates it's so the idea really is to have something that you can do within your capability mm -hmm. do it slowly and incrementally see how you function with it in, in the context mm -hmm. of your therapy and then obviously try not to overdo so yeah. you end up exhausted because yep. that I would think would have some negative effects on mm -hmm. your overall yeah um, and, and it's good to touch treatment. base with your medical provider to make sure that it is okay for you to be um, doing some of these things you know some other things to kind of watch out for you know you don't want to exercise if you're really not feeling well or you're having you know pretty significant nausea um, also or a fever. yeah or a fever over 100.4 you know that in is indicating maybe a little bit um, of infection or just something going on you know at that point touching base with your doctor but those are things to kind of you know, watch out for. Or so, pain. You want to make sure clearly. that pain, yeah, you don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, provoke pain or increase the pain that you may already be having, you know. So you were alluding to this program that, that, that you have here at Upstate that you're a part of mm -hmm. that works specifically with cancer patients. Do you think in general it's helpful to find programs of that nature because maybe you have more support or more, you know, um, personalized yeah. care? Yeah, I mean, if you talk to your medical provider and they say it's okay for you to exercise and you're comfortable kind of creating your own program and kind of moving on from there, then, you know, I would say that that's okay. If you're feeling like you ha are having questions or concerns or you're just not sure what to do, then sometimes getting a little bit of help from, you know, uh, an exercise professional may be helpful, whether it is a PT or, you know, a trainer that you've worked with in the past. Um, some gyms in the area have some programs for people with cancer, so... You know, there are things to reach out to if you're feeling like you need a little bit of help. Sounds great. Well, yeah. thank you so very much for coming in and Thanks. filling us in on all that. My guest has been uh, Dr. Cassie Turpening. She holds a doctorate in physical therapy and specializes in oncology rehabilitation at Upstate Medical University. Thanks again, Cassie. Thank I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thanks, Linda. The death of a young person is always very hard to accept. Sephora Germain, a fourth-year medical student, wrote about this in her flash fiction piece called The Funeral. She looks at death's impact on a young boy who isn't at all sure what death means, and then she re-goes to the scene and this time looks at it from the boy's older cousin's view. No matter the age, no matter the understanding, this event is simply unacceptable. The funeral. James. They put rock in a big brown box, and there were different colored flowers all around. Rock was in a black suit. I had never seen him in this suit. Rock was sleeping. I wondered when he would wake. 
I hope next weekend we can play basketball. He told me if I beat him, he would buy me ice cream. I really like cookies and cream. Rock's mom, Auntie Anne, was crying. Why was she so sad? Cousin Janet was crying, too, holding on to Auntie Anne's hand. I looked at my mom, and her face was so sad. I asked my mom what was going on. She said Rock died of cancer and was going to a better place. I asked my mom if I could go with him for Rock. He was my favorite cousin. The last time I saw Rock, he threw up purple stuff. He looked skinny. I think he cut his hair. His voice was soft, and because he was quiet, I thought he was mad at me. But then he looked at me, and he said, James, be a good boy. One day we will play basketball all day. I asked Cousin Rock when, and he said soon. I wonder what it means when someone dies, and cancer sounds like a big word. Janet. My mother held my hand closely to her bosom as if she would never let it go. She shook forward and backwards. The hot water from her eyes hit the surface of my hands intensely. I looked down at my black suede skirt and saw the wetness from my own tears. I could not bear to see Rock like this. This was not the memory I wanted to have of him. My eyes shifted gently towards little James. He stared down at the casket with an expressionless face. I wondered if he understood. He wore a brown suit that tugged his body and would soon become too small for him. He had black penny loafer shoes. His head tilted slightly to the right side. He gave a sigh of curiosity. But I would not do it. I would not be the one to tell him that Rock is gone. How could I tell him that Rock had already played his last game of basketball with him? After what seemed like an eternity, James finally walked with his head down, away from the casket. I wonder, did he know? For joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week. And if you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or why not check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.